Welcome to the Creating Structure podcast, not from Creating Structure Studios this week, from my mock Creating Structure studio at my home in uh, Hudson, Ohio. Uh, our offices are closed due to COVID, plus we had a massive snowstorm here in Northeast Ohio by the lake. I'm sure our guest, Max Perlstein, is no, no stranger to big surprise snowstorms in Michigan. So um, Max is my guest this week. Um, Max, welcome to the show. Great to have you here. It's great to be here and honored to be on this, uh, this podcast. Really enjoy all the work you do, John. Thank you, Max. Um, looking forward to getting into it with you. Um, kind of as we always do, kind of unpack your background. State your name. Tell us where you're from. What's your background? Where'd you go to school? Kind of what's your history? Sure, sure. So my history is pretty interesting uh, from the standpoint of the glass industry. Uh, you know, our, our family has been in the glass business since 1898. Um, my great-grandfather uh, named Harris uh, Pearlstein came over uh, with $34 in his pocket and a glass cutter uh, and started uh, a glass business. Uh, that glass business went through several generations and, and he started in Philadelphia. They would deliver glass by bicycle uh, and eventually by the 50s had locations throughout the United States uh, with different members of the family uh, running different locations. So we had locations in Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, New York City. Uh, we glazed. The, the Pearlstein family were among the original glazers of the Empire State Building, which has been reglazed 50 times, I think, since then. Uh, and my father uh, ran the Pittsburgh facility for, uh, for the family. And uh, it just kind of led from there. Uh, so it was in the blood. But what, what comes interesting is, is that uh, growing up, uh, you know, I was 10 years younger than my brother, 12 years younger than my sister. Uh, both of them were in the business. Uh, and uh, we would talk about it every night at dinner, or they would. And my mother sure. and I would probably sit at the table and, and uh, have no interest in whenever the discussions got heated, John, you know, because my brother would fight my dad over something in the business. My mom would change the subject by saying, how's the weather? You know, and that was the cue of, okay, time to change the subject. I had no desire to get into the glass business, none. I, I was focused on being in sports production. I went to Ohio University in Athens, Ohio uh, for sports production and did play-by-play uh, -play TV down there for Ohio Bobcat basketball and football. I worked in Columbus, Ohio at the NBC affiliate as a sports producer. And then, and then uh, luckily back to Pittsburgh at the NBC affiliate as a sports producer. Uh, and I was at the NBC affiliate in Pittsburgh when my brother came to me in the early nineties and said, you know, bro, we're growing like crazy glasses in your blood. Give it a shot. And I said, you know, I don't want to be in the glass business. You guys are in the glass business. I, you know, I'm good with, with the TV business. And he kept on, you know, working me and working me, give it a shot. You'll like it. You'll like it. And so part-time, I started at uh, Pearlstein Distributing, uh, which uh, then turned into PDC Glass and Metals, and it's now a, a location of True Light uh, in Cheswick, PA. Uh, and I started there in inside sales, and he was right. It connected with me. It was in my blood. Uh, and, uh, you know, one thing led to another, and, uh, and, and here I am 20-plus years later, uh, absolutely in love with the glass business. What a fantastic background. How, what, what part of it connected with you? What when you say it, it really did connect with you. Like, what was it compared to what you had thought? Well, well, two things. One was it, it actually it turned out to be more exciting than I thought. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 I thought that the, the glass business was boring and, you know, just because of the discussions growing up between my, my dad and my brother and my sister, I, I couldn't see that there was any interesting thing there. And, and when I got into it and I saw where the glass went and, and, and the customers that we dealt with and the people we dealt with and, and, and here we had glass on the, you know, greater Pittsburgh airport and we had it in, you know, you know, malls and in elevators and, and so on. And you could see the logo and you could see we were a glass fabricators. So we were making insulated glass and tempered glass and seeing that and seeing it everywhere, seeing it in the local fast food restaurants. And that, that excited me. You really, oh, yeah. you, you started to realize glass was such a big part of, uh, of the building construction landscape. So that was, that was part one. And then part two is ironically, I met my wife. Uh, this way. She, she happened to be, you know, she turned out to be a customer and uh, she was one of the first customers I talked to. I, when I first started in inside sales, my instructions, John, were just write down everything the customer says, you know, and, and, and that's the order because this is, this is pre-email. This is pre-fax machine. People would call in orders. They would call in insulated units. Well, she was in Michigan. I was in Pittsburgh. And I, I had talked to her a couple of times and she spoke very clearly and, and gave, it was very easy on me. Mm-hmm. And so I went to the receptionist and said, if Beth from Mount Clemens Glass calls, please send those calls to me because she, she's perfect. I, she talks the right way. Uh, and so she would call six, seven times a day to place one, onesie, twosie orders. And so we talked every day. Uh, well, fast forward a year, I went on a truck to visit customers that my brother had this brilliant idea that he would send inside salespeople on our delivery trucks uh, to visit customers because you could A, see what the driver goes through and B, you can see so many more customers and you can appreciate what everybody's going through. Well, I got to go on a truck to Michigan and I got to see this Beth from Mount Clemens Glass and uh, it was love at first sight. Uh, I got her to, uh, to come to Pittsburgh and visit. Uh, we uh, connected and three months later we were engaged 11 months after that we were married uh, and we've been married ever since uh, so uh, it, so if anything connects me to the glass industry besides the love of seeing construction I met the love of my life and have two kids two awesome kids because of it well, that may be that I hardly know what to say that may be the best story <laughs> we've heard yet what a great yeah. story for, from you and for our audience so you love the visual nature of glass and yes and pervasiveness. Um, and that resonates with a lot of people with me as well. I mean, we've talked about that some on the podcast and all, but, um, yeah, that is, you know, that, that architectural flavor, it's the, that visual exterior component, whether it's interior or whether it's outside the building, but I, I got a hundred questions already. Um, cause I've already learned a bunch of new things about you. So your grandfather, well, and I'll get back to your wife. That's, that's a great love in the glass industry. What a great yeah. topic that is. Um, your grandfather, Harris, where did he immigrate from? So was, he was the great grandfather and he, he came over, he came over from Russia. And so Harris then had a son named Max. Max okay. then had a son named Harris. And then my dad was named Harris and he had me. So we had a Harris, Max, Harris, Max sort of, uh, <laughs> uh, of runs there. Uh, and so okay. uh, he, he, he came from Russia. And it was all, and you say the family business was all glass fabrication. It wasn't contract glazing. Back, yeah. Back in the day in the 1890s, they did everything. You know, right. they, 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 they fabricated, distributed, glazed. Um, ironically, his real last name, and this might be urban legend because of the way it's been told over the years, but uh, when he came to Ellis Island, his real last name was Moshkovitz. 
and you at Ellis Island, they ask you, what's your last name and what do you do? Uh, and that has the, the sayings go how people ended up with names like Baker because they couldn't speak great English and they would just say, they just knew they would be prompted with a question and they would say Baker, Baker, Baker. And that's how they ended up with the last name Baker. Well, uh, as it turned out, my great grandfather did not speak great English. He repeated what the gentleman in front of him said, which was, you know, my name is Pearl Stein or Pearl Stein and I do glass. What happened? He recognized glass. He just repeated it. So the name got changed. Interesting. Uh, so, so he was a glass guy. They did everything. My current iteration of the family, when we started PDC uh, in 1977, uh, it was just a distributor. And my brother, who's unbelievable and visionary type of guy, decided to get into tempering uh, in the 80s when, when tempering was taking two weeks and he couldn't understand why. And he got into tempering and was able to deliver tempering in two days and three days and really kind of disrupted the market. And so... I've always been on the fabricating side, tempering, insulating, spandrel, and so on. That's great. And you said that that past business is currently an office of a division of True Light. Right. So we sold, we sold out in uh, 1999 to a uh, group that was going to roll up a, bu- a bunch of different glass companies called the United Glass Corporation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I left uh, that original company in 2002 to go to Arch Aluminum which was another part of our family. Uh, mm-hmm. It was the same people, you know, coming back to the original Harris Perlstein. Uh, but uh, the United Glass Corporation ended up selling out to uh, True Light, uh, I think probably 2012, 2013, something like that. I see. So Cir- circle back for a minute. Um, so you went to Ohio U, which is, yes. you know, near and dear to this Ohio guy. Um, yeah even though I didn't go there, big reputation is party school. Did, what was your degree? Was it in sports marketing or what? Like, what did communications. You Communica- communications. I went to, the, went to the communications school, telecommunications, and uh, you know, worked at the WOUB, the television and radio stations there, and uh, you know, loved it. Lo- lo- loved the opportunity, loved the school, still follow it very closely today, still a huge fan. Yeah. Uh, one of my colleagues, Craig Mertz, who's been with me for 22 years, he's a bobcat, and he reminds me every chance he gets. Um <laughs> So, uh, yeah, great place. So did you actually broadcast or did you just were you on the production side only? Oh, no, I, I broadcast and, and I, I probably still take abuse to this day that uh, the, the name Pearlstein was, 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 was hard for me to spit out. Uh, and so I changed my name. I had an on-air name as Max Malone. Uh, and so while I was there in the, the late 80s, early 90s. I was known as Max Malone, which uh, drove my parents a little crazy uh, especially when they came up to visit and somebody would, would run up to them and say, hi, Mr. And Mrs. Malone. And my dad would just give me a look that would uh, <laughs> shoot daggers. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, because people really didn't know. They knew me, you know, knew me as Max Malone there. And so uh, uh, that was the name back then. Uh, but uh, I, loved, I loved doing it. I was on air. I loved doing Ohio basketball. Uh, you know, and uh, if, I, if I could still do play-by-play today, I probably would. But uh, I love the glass industry. That's my, that's my life. That's fantastic. I'm really glad you brought a lot of energy to both. You have that broadcast voice still. It's a great voice. Thank you. I love Thank Max you. Malone. Yeah. Like <laughs> yep. Ladies yep. and gentlemen. Um, yeah. Well, that's good. So you, you talked about your background in your education and history. Boy, you have got an extensive history. That may be one of the deepest histories. Do you know any family or anybody in our industry that has a deeper, longer history that you've come across? The industry is so dominated by family businesses. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found out recently that Joshua Berg, Glass Enterprises, 
uh, CEO there, great company uh, that, that his dad and, and, and either uh, someone from my family had worked together uh, back in the day in Philadelphia. So they go way back. Uh, and, and, you know, I look in Texas uh, at, at folks like uh, Anchor Ventana, Felix Munson Sr., who's a tremendous human. Uh, he works with his daughter, Regina, who's great. And then their son, uh, or uh, Felix's son, Felix Jr., owns B&B Glass in Dallas. Uh, so we have so many family businesses. That's what makes this industry great. Uh, is the family business. But uh, I think with going back in time, probably the only ones that compare to the Pearlstein family would be the Zigglers. Uh, I may be wrong, but I think that's it. Well, that's terrific. That That's really great to know because you've got a lot of credibility. Uh, there's so much history here. And it makes sense when you publish your your blog. And by the way, I want to put a shout out there to the audience that you know Max has this Fabricator blog spot, right? Yeah, from the fabricator.blogspot.com. Yes. From the fabricator.blogspot.com. The most consistent blog in the business comes out every week. And if it doesn't, he tells us it's not and why it's not. And um, I like that I like how you emphasize the the people. You're you've you're always talking about the relationships. I mentioned on your LinkedIn uh uh, timeline this week, how much I respected that, you know, you mentioned those who have gone on the other side, passed, passed away. And that's just an honorable thing, but it, I think it, it feels true to who you are with the history you have. I, I appreciate that. I, I try. I think that it's a, it's a great opportunity to, uh, you know, I like recognizing people both, uh, you know, you know, that are with us and then especially those who have passed because they don't sometimes get the uh, the credit, uh, you know, that maybe their family doesn't realize how important they were in this class business and, and what they what they have done. Uh, so I like to I like to spread that. And I've heard from a lot of people, uh, you know, from their families to say, wow, I didn't know my dad, you know, had that sort of effect or my, my mom or whatever. And uh, so I like doing that. And I love recognizing people because it's, it makes you feel good. Um, I love doing the blog. I started it in 2005. Mm. Uh, and that was really because I was missing that communication angle that I had from college and, and, and wanting to be in TV and radio. I wanted to communicate with people. And, uh, you know, I, I decided, uh, you know, to do a, a, an industry blog. It hadn't, there wasn't one. Uh, so I had an opportunity to do it and uh, it, it really did take off. Uh, I was a little bit more reckless back in the early 2000s when I started it. I felt a little bit bulletproof. I was younger, uh, probably not the smartest guy in the world. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's grown over the years and, uh, do it every Sunday uh, for pretty much 48 weeks, 49 weeks out of the year. Uh, and I love doing it. And uh, as long as it's good therapy for me and people still read it, uh, I'm going to keep doing it. I like that comment about therapy for you and people keep reading it. You know, writers write because they want to write. And, you know, to be a good writer, you have to have experience and you have to have something to say. Um, and I think it's it's therapeutic for the writer. I think most writers write because it's therapeutic for them and you can feel it when it is, and you can feel it when it's mm, more prescribed, you know, uh, versus organic. So you are, I'm gonna gonna dub you the Seth Godin of the glass industry because (laughs) every 48, 49 weeks a year, once a week, you know, better to play the long game for 15 years and go once a week, that's hundreds and hundreds of blogs than to flame out after a few. So thank you for that input. You're, you're welcome. And I'm honored by that. Uh, Seth Godin's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I, I, 
I know my friend Rich Pareko is a huge fan of, of, of Seth Godin and I know Rich listens to this. And so he, yeah. he, he will be blown away. You compared me to, to Seth. So, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm blown away by that. But uh, I think from a marketing angle, there's a lesson there, John. The biggest mistake people make marketing wise when they start either a newsletter or they start a blog or they, they come up with a social media tactic is they don't prepare enough content uh, and they, they burn out quickly. You know, they, they think that they can do it and they sit there and they do one or two and then all of a sudden they're looking down and they, I got nothing. And so I always advise people, you know, three months minimum, six months, you, you want to have that plan laid out so you have enough because you never want to start off and then run out of gas. Yeah, that's uh, a good and, and point. So, and, and that's how I've lived this. That's how I've lived it and that's how I live when, when I work with other folks. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, there's, there's a whole line there because I know, you know, when Seth started a blog, he... He just said, I'm going to blog every day. You know, he's blogged like whatever it is, 20,000 blogs. I mean, it's been years. Yeah. He's just blogged every single day and have a lot of respect for that. Um, and when I started the podcast, I developed, a, the last thing I wanted to do was start something and then it just, it stopped. That's worse than, than never starting at all. Yes. Um, because your audience has to have some level of predictability, whether you're talking to three people or 3000 people, it doesn't really matter. I, I made a list of, I think I sat down for 15 minutes. I made a list of 30 people and I thought I better stop because this is over a year's worth of content because <laughs> we'll go every other week. And, you know, occasionally we skip a week for the holidays, but there right. are so many interesting people to talk to. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And, pl- and, and plus again, I, it, what's, what's great about you is you have this, this wide, vast connection. I'm very focused on the glass side of the industry. You from the engineering side, you're running into building facade people and you're running into the curtain wall people and you're running the glass and other engineers and, you know, building membrane and, and, and you're, you're, you're touching so many different spots and, and, uh, you know, you're naturally, you know, you know, I read your blogs and you're always quizzing, you know, you know, very curious. And I, I think it's perfect. This is a perfect medium for you. And, and, and then to, you know, have people from the interior side, like Rose, a couple of weeks ago, which was fantastic, and then following up a couple of weeks later with someone like me, completely two different ends of the spectrum, and I could see how you could have a list a mile long. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. You and Rose have one one thing in common already, in that you had uh, an ancestor who immigrated, you know, from the United States, and of course, everybody did at some point in the United States, but just to know that history. Um, is fantastic. And I learned a lot about, I don't know hardly anything about interior design, you know, like my wife says, use this color and I put it on the wall. So the other thing you guys have in common is this entrepreneurial bent, because I'd like to talk about that for a minute, if you don't mind, because you've, sure. you've worked in the, so you've worked for someone like most entrepreneurs I talked to, you've worked for someone in the sports production world, the media world, you've worked for your family. You've, been in business as an equity partner, right? Yes. And now you're an independent consultant, correct? Yes. Yeah. So, so basically what happened was, uh, you know, I, I left Arch Aluminum, which was a family business uh, in, in uh, 2009 and I went to Vitro out of Mexico. Uh, and and uh, great, was it a great company. It was 10, I was only there 10 months because it was a very um, uh, heavy turmoil time, both in the company and also in the, the economy and the recessions and so on. And, but it was the best 10 months I ever had from the standpoint of the connections I made, the confidence that I gained. It was, you know, the first time in this industry outside of a family business, 
you know, I was in my own family business and then I was working with cousins at the, at Arch Aluminum. And so, uh, this was an opportunity to really learn from some other people and meet other people. Uh, and, and so when that, that, uh, writing was kind of on the wall that I needed to do something, it was again, my brother, who's a huge influence in my life who said, you know, you really should start your own thing. And I said, you know, do you think, do you think I could do, you know, my own thing? And he says, you love helping people. You know, I think you'd be great at it. And, uh, I was very fortunate the National Glass Association uh, was there to be one of my first clients on day one, uh, you know, to help promote glass build and help, help promote the NGA. And that was a, a, a really, really fortunate move. Um, Denise Sheehan, who ran glass build at the time, was a, a, big, uh, a, a big supporter of mine. And Nicole Harris and I had gone way back and Nicole was heavily involved. It was before she was uh, the the CEO there. Uh, she was the publisher of Glass Magazine, and so she was a great supporter. And so they gave me a shot uh, along with a couple other companies. And uh, I had three companies to start, and uh, you know, kind of the rest took off from there. I was able to build the business. Um, I called it Soul Source because I wanted people to contact me uh, as one one source if they needed something, whether it was my expertise as marketing and communication strategy. So anything that had to do with communication is where I came into play. But if they needed things like, you know, legal, uh, construction legal help, or they needed, you know, shop drawings, or, you know, the engineering side, I've, I've communicated with you on occasion, you know, with people who have reached out to me and said, hey, who, you know, who, who, who can you appoint me to from an engineering side? Um, that's, that was the goal. And uh, to be able to connect, you know, the, connect the dots. And, and then, you know, hopefully it, it would come back to me with others, you know, uh, referring to me. And it has. Uh, so it's worked out exactly kind of the way it was drawn up. Um, it's been a little adventurous because it's one thing, you know, I look at a guy like you who I can't do what you do. You, you are brilliant with regards to the engineering and your staff and, and the people you've, you've, you've groomed. Um, I can't do that. Uh, and most CEOs that would hire you can't do that because you've got that schooling, you've got that license. Marketing and communication, in some, especially now with social media, everyone feels like they're an expert. Yeah. Uh, and especially when you draw up an ad for somebody and they don't like a color, I had a client that just could not agree on the color blue I had in their ad and it was making me absolutely crazy. I'm like, no, trust me, this ad looks great. Please stop mm -hmm. trying to mess with it. Uh, and so that's the challenge I have is that everybody I think feels like they could be an expert in social media or in marketing. But you know, when, when you look at somebody on the technical side, like you, they can't, there's no way they can say to you, well, no, that, that looks good to me. <laughs> No, yeah. you, you've got that license, that stamp that backs you up. So it's been a challenge from an entrepreneurial standpoint, but it's worked out well. That's a really insightful comment. There's so many directions we could go, but I, I, I like that. Um, I do want to say something. I don't want to forget this um, about private and family business. I just got to put a word out there to our audience in yeah. that, you know, any business that's not a public business is a family business. Like, oh, come on, John. No, and Mark Silverberg was the first one that said this to me, Mark Silverberg from Techniform. Uh -huh. He said, come on, John. It, it's, a, it's a private business. It's a family business. I'm like, no, it's not a family business. It's private. He goes, no, 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 no. I'm paraphrasing. He's like, listen, if it's, if it's your money or if it's the money that belongs to some individuals in a family, it's a family business. If it's not a public business, it's a family business. And I'm like, you know, right? He's right. So I tweeted it out. Every private business is a family business. And I got a lot of like, 
Yeah, duh, thumbs up. You know, I, I, so I, I think it's great in the glass industry that there's that much longevity, there's that much connectivity, there's familial connection, um, because the truth is in every, every industry there is. Um, perhaps ours is a little tighter than some, but I just wanted to make that point, you know, every private business is a family business and you guys are a great, great example of that. It, it, it's a great point. And, and I think the only, the only downfall, and this is something that I talked about, you know, uh, for the Texas Glass Association once, the only downfall of the family, quote unquote, family business, maybe the true family business is we get caught into the quote unquote, that's the way we've always done it mode. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so a lot of companies do it because that's the way their mom or dad did it or their grandfather did it or grandmother did it. And they follow that and they're not apt to change. And that's where the frustration comes within our business sometimes mm. that they don't want to go outside the box because that's the way we've always done it in our family business. Interesting. Um, and that's what we have to work, work through. But yeah, a, I, I love that point because you're right. Every, every business that's not public, uh, it's not publicly traded out there. It really is a family business. It is. Um, so I really liked your point about the marketing side because, you know, everybody thinks they're a, a, a quasi marketer these days or because, you know, they read something on YouTube or they read about pay per click or they, they you know, they picked a business card or whatever. Um, it, there's a lot of information out there. So to, what, you know, your communication and marketing and media guy at Soul Source, but you want to talk a little bit more about a your emphasis, like what is the work you're doing, um, and then uh, b how do you counteract some of that uh, that downward trend, that drag on questioning the validity of you as a marketing professional? Well, the second part first. That's that's hard. That's a daily struggle and a daily grind. Uh, you know because. You know, the thing about marketing, uh, you know, and I was told this early on in, in my career is that, uh, you know, marketing doesn't make any money in some people's minds. You know, a salesperson is out there generating revenue, you know, operations people are putting you know products together and here the marketing guy is creating ads and spending money and buying an ad in, in Glass Magazine or, you know, taking a booth at Glass Build America sort of thing and we're the spenders. Uh, and so that adds even an extra layer of pressure. Uh, and, and so the key is, is making people see, uh, you know, see, see the results more and, and, uh, some parts of social media have helped that LinkedIn, when people see the, their profiles starting to gain structure, uh, their company pages gain, you know, gaining followers and seeing the statistics grow and getting the feedback. I think that that, you know, they, they start to see that, but it's tough. Uh, it, it really is. It's something that people have to really buy into. Uh, and, and, you know, that's a, a constant daily adventure for me. Uh, and for even, even the greats like Rob Struble at Vitro is the best around and Rob still battles every day, uh, to make people see, uh, you know, what he, he puts out, uh, having that effectiveness. Yeah. Uh, but, but, uh, you know, we, you know, it's just, you know, continuing to stay in people's faces and, and staying on top of the technology. Um, you know, you mentioned earlier about pay-per-click, um, search engine optimization is more important than ever, you know, making sure that, you know, your, your sites are ranking, your sites are optimized and they're fast. And, uh, these are things that I do is, is making sure that, you know, you're studying your analytics and making sure that the pages that people are going to, uh, you know, they're not jumping off of them immediately. Um, uh, big, you know, big mistakes people make with their websites where they're putting their contact information. You know, that's the thing that people want to know. 
Uh, and so, so constantly staying on top of that are, are important things. And so uh, my whole role is anything that it has to do with communications, I'm in, in the middle of. I know how to edit video, which is totally different than, you know, in, in 1988, I was vid- editing three quarter inch tapes that were, were uh, you know, machine to machine and took forever. And now you do it at the click on a, on a MacBook. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, but I know how to edit video. So video is important. Um, you know, podcasting, you know, like you're doing is very important. So when people really respect that and understand that, it makes sense. Um, in public relations, getting PR out. Uh, it's amazing how many people don't realize that you can put a PR out when you hire somebody and it brings positive notoriety to your company. Uh, and so just, just working those different angles uh, with companies at different levels. I do everything from being on a retainer basis where somebody can call me, 24/7, and some people do to working on projects and, and just you know rebuilding a website or uh, you know doing a micro page or some sort of uh, you know ad campaign. Uh, I do it all and, and everything in between. Uh, and most of it I can do myself, but then I have a lot of freelancers that I work with, and uh, I lean on other people in this industry that uh, are better at things than I am uh, to, to to help me through it. So uh, you know it's, it's a lot of times a team effort. You must be one heck of a busy guy when I listen to all that. That is a lot of stuff. I like being busy. I do. I, I, I work Saturdays and Sundays and uh, I like being busy. I, I think it's, uh, I, if I went to a 40 hour a week job, John, I wouldn't know what to do with my life. I, I, would, I would lose <laughs> my mind. I like, I like being busy. I've worked from home. Uh, I've worked from home since 19, uh, I guess it was 1997. Uh, you know, that I started to work from home and really full time 2002. Uh, and so this, this whole thing that everybody's learning now I've been doing for years. And, uh, for me, I love it. I love staying busy and uh, now more than ever, and that, that my kids are both in college and they're not here. Um, you know, they're, they're, the focus is, is, uh, I like being busy. I like working and, uh, it keeps me, keeps me going. Good for you. Well, that's a good, uh, a good mentality to have in this business because it's, um, it's, there's never a dull moment. There's always a sprint. No. We, we talk about heavens. Mike Kohler talks about having sprint capacity. And I think to myself, sometimes I feel like from Monday morning till Friday night, that's all we're doing is sprinting. We're running yes. a marathon at five minutes a mile instead of taking it easy. Uh, there's always some fire to put up. That, and I push, I push a lot of things to Saturday and Sunday because of that. Cause Monday through Friday are a lot of fire drills. Mm-hmm. And so if I have, you know, if somebody says, Hey, I need a few updates on my website, if it's not urgent, I push that to Saturday or Sunday and my phone's not ringing and I can yeah. pound it out in, in a, a portion of the time than trying to stick it in on a Tuesday at three o'clock. Yeah, absolutely. Well, then thank you for accommodating this podcast on a Wednesday. Oh. <laughs> no, my, my, my pleasure. No, this is an honor. That's really great. So uh, you've got some tremendous insights. I know I, I like how you discuss PR, marketing, sales. There's differences between all those. Um, can you talk about, let's talk about the glass industry a little bit. Um, are you at liberty to talk about some of the work you're doing for NGA, National Glass, what your emphasis and focus is sure. there right now? Sure. The NGA is uh, an incredible organization. It's a nonprofit, uh, which I think sometimes people don't realize. It's the home to Glass Magazine, Window and Door Magazine, Glass Build America. Uh, and it, it houses some talented people, a lot of talented people, uh, folks like Andrew Herring, who... Uh, mm-hmm. It's one of the most talented guys our industry's ever seen. Uh, and what we do over there is, is, is support this industry through advocacy. And I love that. That's, that's my wheelhouse. I want this industry to grow. I want it to be the best that it can be. 
And so we have things like My Glass Class that is a, an incredible education platform that is growing every day where, you know, companies can, you know, sign up and have these modules uh, direct to their computers to train, you know, new folks on so many aspects of the glass business uh, through My Glass Class. Uh, you know, things like the Building Envelope Contractors Conference, which I've been heavily involved with for years, uh, you know, that, that happens February and March each year. Uh, you know, the education that comes from these sort of events uh, last for years and years and not, not only the education, but the networking. Uh, I, one of my big things is Glassfield America. Uh, it's the annual trade show. Uh, this year it'll be in Atlanta in September. Hopefully uh, we don't have uh, the, the significant COVID issues by then and we can meet in person. Uh, but that's where, you know, thousands upon thousands of, uh, of glass industry professionals gather uh, every fall. Uh, and it, it really is a kind of a homecoming in a way for so many people. Uh, it's the largest show in North America every year. Uh, it's one of the largest shows in the world. Uh, you know, obviously Glass Tech and some others that happen every other year are bigger, but this this is a show that people really mark on their calendar and they get to. And that's a key for teaching people about new products and new systems and new ways uh, and, and just being able to walk the floor and learn what's new out there. So those are all things that I work in and I help them, you know, with, with anything that the magazines need or any any connections or any ideas uh, interviews and things like that. And then they obviously, they reprint my blog every Tuesday in eGlass Weekly. Uh, and so uh, I, I love being a part of it. I'm incredibly grateful to Nicole Harris for continuing to give me a shot there. Uh, and to work with the team there is, is an honor and they, they do great things for our industry. I'm uh, proud to be there. Yeah, it's, yeah, Nicole, Katie, Andrew, Sarah, I mean, all those, it's just, uh, just a list of person after person that are Tremendous, you know, that they're invested in the industry too. Uh, that's what's so, that's another great it, thing about it. It, it. it really is. It's a dream team of people. And you mentioned Katie Devlin. Katie, Katie's a writer and she lives this world. You know, yeah. you, know, you know, she lives the glass industry. She's been in it since uh, I think she was 10 years old. I mean, she's, I feel like she's been here forever and she's so good uh, and does such a nice job and, and really is into it. It's not a job for her. It really doesn't come yeah. across that way. It's a passion. I, you know, actually, and I, this isn't a, a, I didn't plan this. I mean, I, I would say, I don't know of a better monthly publication. I don't know of a better editor or publisher than, than Katie. She's, she's spectacular. So shout out to Katie. Yeah. She's given yep. me some opportunities as well, but I've seen the um, the progression and the development of Glass Magazine. It is a very, very professionally done publication. Yeah, no, thank you. I'm honored to be uh, you know among those those folks. They they blow me away every day. Yeah. So, um, does that take up a large amount of your time? It's, it's, it's my largest client. And so it does take up a good amount. Uh, and it depends on the year, you know, the timing of the year. I mean, so obviously sure. around events like BEC and Glassfield, it, it's significant. It, it overcomes me. Um, you know, my, my wife, I think counts down the days until Glassfield comes and is over uh -huh. because, you know, I, I do get into very focused Glassfield is, is, is my life mode. Uh, and so she, she doesn't want anything to do with me as we, we get to the show and then she knows once it's over, uh, I kind of come back to normal a little bit, but, uh, it does, but I love every minute of it because it helps the industry. It means so much. Yeah. And you said that glass build is, is it the largest, uh, industry show in the world? In North America, it is. In North uh, America. In the world, 
in, in the world, it's still glass tech that happens every other year in Dusseldorf. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's one of the, the larger ones just because of the amount of people that come and come into the U.S. Uh, specifically for it. Um, you know, sometimes 400 exhibitors, 350, 400 exhibitors, and it's all across the window and door fenestration world. So, uh, you know, you you have everything in there from a a screw that can go into a curtain wall all the way up to, you know, you know, primary glass, uh, you know, are on display on that floor. Uh, so a tiny company all the way up to, you know, a billion dollar company. It's amazing. Yeah, no, it, it is a great show. So, um, is there anything you're working on, um, you know, you're doing a lot of marketing work, you're doing advocacy work. Um, any particular passion points or any particular advocacy work you're doing related to the wall? We talked a little bit before the show about, you know, the, the, the glass ratio and exterior cladding, um, percent of glass. Um, is there anything in particular that, you know, you're trying to work towards further resolution, further, further visibility, further advocacy, et cetera? Sure, sure. I, so I think there's two things. One is definitely the battle for the wall, and uh, you know, you know, Mick Patterson, who was your guest last week, uh, last last cast, was fantastic, uh, always fantastic. And he had mentioned the battle for the wall. And for me, you know, he, he had mentioned the battle for the wall was the glass industry wanting more of the wall. And and I think he's incorrect there because I think it's the glass industry protecting what we already have because there's been so many people pushing for a reduction in window to wall ratio. They don't want the glass because the glass doesn't perform as well. We've picked up a horrible reputation, uh, very unnecessarily and unfairly. The glass, you know, the glass industry doesn't want to move, doesn't want to provide better products uh, is a poorly performing product. We, we, we push poorly performing aluminums and so on. And I know Helen Saunders, you know, addressed that as well. Um, That's, that's, couldn't be further from the truth. It may have been true 15 years ago, but it's not in these days. Um, the, the industry support is there. So one of my big pushes is, is supporting people like Dr. Tom Culp and Irma Lasowell from, from the NGA uh, that are constantly, and people like Helen at Facade Tetonics, you know, that are pushing the good of glass and aluminum and what we do. Uh, and so that's a passion play for sure. Uh, we have to keep on that. Brick doesn't serve anybody. You know, a day without glass, a chance to not look out the window is craziness. You know, uh, these studies that, John, that are coming out constantly about how natural light is so good for occupant comfort, they're not lies. They're not made up. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, occupant comfort comes from being able to have that natural light coming in, and, and it does help, uh, you know, productivity. You know, nobody wants to work in a dingy, dark cave atmosphere. Um, it's one of the things that worries me about schools right now is because schools are so worried about security that they're building a lot of brick and mortar sort of schools with not a lot of windows because they're, they want to keep the students safe. And I get that, but we can do that still with glass, protective glass and, and, and all of the different, uh, you know, uh, you know, options that we have with glass, you can still have that natural light and still protect these kids in so many different ways and not put them behind huge brick walls. Uh, and so natural light plays a big deal. So that's a big, big passion play for me. And then the other passion play for me, you know, is where we're going to be post COVID. And I believe glass is playing a huge role post COVID because, uh, people are going to return to offices. Uh, I think companies realize the work from home thing full time is not a good thing for a, a lot of models. Uh, but they want to keep their people safe. They want to keep their people comfortable, comfortable. Uh, and so, 
the days of partitions that, that aren't uh, great with germs, like uh, fabric sort of partitions are going to go away and glass is going to be the, the way to go. Glass offices, glass walls, uh, and glass cleans very easily. There's plenty of coatings that can be added to glass to, to make them, you know, low maintenance and, and, and some that are promoting uh, being antimicrobial and so on. So I, I, I see a lot of interior architects and, and a lot of interior glass players jumping into that space saying, we've got the play for you. And I think that's good for our whole entire industry. Let's talk about your, um, your statement uh, about nothing could be further from the truth. You were saying that there's this perception out there that um, the glass industry doesn't want to change. They just want to stay doing things the same way. That, and you said nothing could be further from the truth. Where do you think that comes from? Well, I think it cut. I think the perception comes from when when things when the code area started to really pick up in 2004. Uh, there, there weren't uh, a lot of uh, educated industry players involved, and and a lot of a lot of perceptions were made based on you know one or two companies that were involved in these processes that didn't have uh, the products that could could compete. In that, in that arena. They didn't have high performance low E, for instance. They had a, a hard coat low E. Uh, and so they were a little, you know, hesitant to move to, the, to this, this level. But uh, that was quickly overcome, uh, you know, and, and, but, but the, 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 the distinction stuck for the most part, that we were slow. And, and part of it is, is that we don't accept uh, a lot of new and exciting products very quickly. Uh, you know, new products come out, they're expensive. It's hard to get people to use them. Uh, the, dy- dy- the dynamic space is going through that and has gone through that for years yeah, because years. it's very expensive. You know, it, it's, it's, it's hard to get a, get a, uh, you know, a footing. So, you know, we, we suffered a little bit with that, but I will tell you, you know, between Vitro and Guardian and Cardinal uh, who all have great soft coat products, they've done a tremendous job of saying, Hey, we've got the, the glass product that you need for your wall that will work. Uh, and then you look at, at folks like Sage uh, on, on, on the dynamic side who have an incredible dynamic product who can take that next step. Uh, and so the products are all there and we have it. But I do think from the early days of 2004, and I remember sitting in an NFRC meeting in 2004, and it was almost like a substitute teacher at an inner city, inner city high school. It was just <laughs> yelling and screaming and people throwing things. And it was just really? uh, absolutely mayhem. And I remember walking out and, 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 and calling, uh, you know, one of my coworkers and saying, I cannot believe what's going on. And I got very heavily into it at that point because, you know, it was like a three ring circus. Uh, we weren't ready for what was going on, what they were saying about us. And we started from behind and we've stayed, unfortunately, in some cases behind ever since. Um, but the work that people like Dr. Tom Culp do and Irma Sowell do has absolutely changed the game. Uh, to, to bring us more respect and, and, and uh, really educating on what we do. And then the companies, like I mentioned before, the Cardinals, the, the Guardians, uh, and, and the, the Vitros have really stepped up to the plate to you know, represent our needs. Viacon's fantastic with it as well. And so uh, we're, we're fighting through some of those perceptions. But uh, unfortunately, uh, they're going to be there. I mean, the, the, we, I sat in a meeting once, John, where, where a guy with a straight face, a, a very educated uh, you know, lab professional said that he, he could see skyscrapers built out of all vinyl uh, you know, as the framing. Skyscrapers with vinyl. And it's just like, no, no, you're, you're absolutely out of your mind. Hmm. Uh, and, and, 
you know, especially architects want to build with huge spans. You're not doing anything with vinyl, let alone huge spans. But that yeah. was the mindset uh, that was in there. And they had the dominant voice and we have to keep fighting back. Wow. That is a, that is a, that's a mouthful. That's a handful there. That's, <laughs> that's some good stuff. Um, so we weren't, we weren't uh, ready for NFRC from the compliance point of view. We weren't really ready for right. the, for the mandates that came out. You and I have talked about that sometime, sometimes where uh, we see it all the time where there's this emphasis on U value or frame labeling. First of all, frame labeling in a custom curtain wall, forget about it. It's not going to happen. It's of no value. Um, and you know, yeah, U value is important and, and we run U value, but um, we both know you and I talked about this where you can meet the U value for a wall and still have horrible condensation, horrible yep. people comfort issues because you haven't dealt with the transitions. Fortunately, I'm seeing more and more of this from customers and architects um, through painful experiences and experiences where we or other consultants have jumped in and said, hey, we can help you with this, um, where they realize I've got to deal with these transitions. I've got to deal with this opaque wall. I've got to deal with this soffit and this parapet. I've got to deal yep. with the thermal issues. But I got to tell you, Max, um, 25 years ago when the spec came in, it was like this. Oh, you need PE calcs. Well, we don't really need PE calcs. You can quote it as an alternate, but we're going to try to get it waived. Now, nobody yeah. questions it. Five years ago, I would say, as, as, as soon as five or six years ago, we would get a thermal spec and they'd say, yeah, but we're not going to do that. We're going to qualify that out. And now, more and more, it's like, no, they're not qualifying that out. It's, you've got to provide those calcs. No, no doubt. It's, 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 it, I think the trend is on our side. It really is. It's growing. People are getting it. And folks like you do a tremendous job, you know, from the engineering side, what, what Wheaton Sprague is able to do and educate, uh, you know, their customers and educate architects and educate developers is, is, is helping dramatically. Uh, and in the end, really paying, you know, pay, you know, paying off because I think these developers uh, a lot of times did, did not understand what they're up against. Architects are so busy you know, if you look at the architectural pr profession, you know, there are half as many architects and specifiers working today than there were 15, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. You know, every firm used to have a whole set of specifiers. All they did was specify. Mm -hmm. Now they don't have that anymore. No. You know, spe uh, specific specifiers a dying breed. And so it depends on, on, on others to be able to bring it together to, to educate. And uh, we just have to keep, you know, we really have to keep our voice out there. I, I wish that in 2004, NGA and Ghana were combined at that point like they are now. And yeah. we had, we had somebody like Dr. Tom Culp uh, in place um, because we'd be further on than we are now, but we're getting there and we'll yeah. just keep fighting. Yeah. You can feel it. You, you mentioned um, post COVID, which, you know, it's yes. still going to be a little time. Um, there's a lot of business owners, you know, scratching their head. Some customers of mine saying, yeah, I'm not sure what this is going to look like. Um, you say you're seeing some trends, some movement. What's your view of that in terms of um, like, what are you seeing from customers now? Are you seeing people developing products and solutions for that? Are you seeing a definite change already or just discussion? No, I'm seeing a definite change. I'm seeing a, a definite change with customers, uh, you know, companies creating specific products. I had an email today from a, from a longtime client and friend who said, you know, you, ne you need to get us into this healthcare space you know, what, what can we do? What products do we need to develop? You know, we've got this in play, but do you think we should do that? And, uh, and so, 
some people are further than he is uh, with, with, and I've seen it online where uh, there are companies that are promoting, you know, very quick build uh, division 10 sort of, of apparatus that they can remodel an office in no time uh, and have glass partitions, glass walls, glass sliding, glass doors, uh, that sort of thing. So the products have been developed. People are moving quickly into it. I think the coatings are going to take a little time because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it, there is some confusion on what is really truly antimicrobial or not. Uh, you know, to be known as antimicrobial, you have to actually be tested and have that label like you would see on, on a bottle of Lysol wipes or Clorox yeah. wipes. Uh, I don't know if people in the, in the glass coating industry have that uh, particularly, but, but I'm sure that they're going to come up with it because it makes sense. Our surface is perfect for it. Uh, and, and I think once things develop, that's coming down the pike and I know people are working on it. So there are a lot, there's a lot going on already in play, especially with the interior, the interior. Uh, I can't stress enough. I I mean, the statistics are out there already that the working from home, the productivity and and, and the losses that companies are seeing are, are, they're able to swallow them now. They're not going to be able to swallow them next year. They're going to have to figure out how to get everybody back. That's a very insightful and probably also a controversial statement without yes. knowing it. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of discussion back and forth about this. You know, I'm, I'm on a, geez, there's a number of angles about this. One of my board, of advi- I have a board of advisors. Um, and one of my board members said to me a few months ago, he said, I just don't see it, John. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I, he goes, I know I'm on school, but I, I just don't see the hundred percent remote work work from home, work remotely viable. He said, I think people want community. They want connectivity. He said, there's a dynamic that goes on. He goes, is it going to be like it was before? Like, does it make sense that some people work in isolation or they work on certain things at certain times in isolation because they have that option? Sure. But he said, I don't see it. I'm, I'm also on a thread for professional services management journal, PSMJ and executive forum. And you know, a lot of people were saying early on, oh, we're just as productive remote as we were in the office. And after a bit, I was looking at my financials and I was scratching my head and I'm going, you know, they're either lying or they're not aware because I, we, we think it's 10 or 15% harder to stay functional at budget than just being in the office. There's a momentum that you can't. So yes. it's a really interesting statement in, in light of people like Salesforce, um, not Salesforce, uh, Shopify deciding they're not moving forward with their corporate office or uh, REI building a brand new corporate headquarters and, and putting it up for sale or um, uh, the folks in San Francisco that wrote the check for $85 million to get out of their $400 million lease agreement. They said, Pinterest, we're not, we're not doing yeah. that. So y- you obviously don't see this work from home as a permanent solution. I, I don't. So I'm on the side of Amazon who's, you know, putting in what 600 million right away to, to, you know, build new buildings and, and, uh, uh, and this is above and beyond Amazon headquarters too. Uh, where, where they're buying more real estate and they believe uh, in it. And so uh, it, to me, I, I joke, if it's good enough for Jeff Bezos, it's good enough for me. Uh, you know, but, but I, I do think that in the long run, I think you're going to see these companies start to come back. I mean, some, some work lends itself to being able to work from home and work from different times. And some of these, you know, you've seen the, you've seen the stories on these uh, Silicon Valley places that are somewhat playgroundish with the, the beanbag chairs and, and, you know, the way their offices were set up to begin with. 
Um, they may not uh, see a difference, but I look at it in a professional atmosphere. It's so hard to work from home. Um, you know, doing the work, especially in the construction world and that focus you need, whether you're a project manager or you're an estimator or you're an engineer, mm-hmm. you know, and you're at home and the UPS guy's ringing the doorbell and your dog's barking and, and then, you know, a neighbor stops by or, 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 or your, your child comes in the room. The focus just isn't there. And that is aside from what you had mentioned before about that community, being able to walk down the hall and talk to somebody and say, hey, did you see the game last night? How's the, how's the wife? How's the kids? There, there's, there's a connection there that people need uh, that keeps them alive, quite frankly. That's really well said. There's a culture. Um, and there are some, you know, I had one customer in California say to me uh, back in May, he said, you know, all the discussions with customers started out with, how are you guys doing and are you working remotely? And he said, he said, you know, John, after three or four weeks, every single one of my project managers was begging to come back in the office. And every single one of my estimators was saying, can we just work from home forever? Because it, it, it was indicative of kind of the role the project manager is right. fielding multiple shop, field, purchase, vendors, everything. And the estimating guy is like, I just need to focus so I can get this pricing put together. And same thing. So like one of the things we've recognized is, hey, if you're checking calculations or you're writing a consulting report after being in the field, it, it may be easier that you're in your basement office like I am right, right. now. But if you're trying to manage a team, it takes a tremendous amount of work. It really does. Yeah. And, and I, think, I think anybody working from home, I've done it, like I said, for a long, long time. It, 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 it does take a special, a special kind of quality. Um, not that I'm special or different. It took me a while. You know, I, I started off in my basement, actually. And, and I, I was losing my mind because, you know, I was talking to myself, talking to the walls. And then I was able to... <laughs> you know, convince my wife, can I please move upstairs and have a window? So, you know, because I just needed, you know, needed light and, and so on. Uh, you know, but still it was tough. I mean, you know, after, you know, after the Super Bowl, who was I going to talk to about the commercials? And then, you know, and I missed, you know, being able to talk to people, you know, about, you know, a project. I had to call them or track them down. And, you know, especially over different time periods, you just didn't know what would work or not. It's going to be interesting to see how it all shakes out. Have you seen any other trends um, early on, like, uh, downstream or upstream from your customer interaction, like on the types of buildings. I mean, we've still seen some very large buildings um, that were identified prior to COVID and still moving forward. And some even since then that are still moving forward, large, fairly large, significant buildings, but there's been a lot of discussion about micro campuses and smaller pods of buildings and smaller clusters and actually needing more square foot per person. So there's still going to be enough real estate, you know, there's still be more real estate. Have you seen any of that? Yeah, no, I, I, it's funny, you know, I'm seeing, I'm seeing that trend move towards the, you know, the campus angle. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, there is definitely some fear. Some analysts I talked to a couple of weeks ago, I was on a, on a pretty interesting phone call. There's a lot going on within the glass world right now with, with, with a, a dynamic glass company, you know, about to go public. Uh, so there's been a lot of phone calls with different analysts on, on that. Uh, and, and their, their concern is those larger buildings Their their research is showing those skyscrapers are going to take a little bit of a pause, uh, because of filling all that space, you know, and, and so there is a little bit of a concern there. Uh, but it has continued. I'm amazed at the resiliency of the building product world of the, the architects, uh, the developers that have continued to, to trudge through this. Um, you know, there, there was this feeling that everybody was going to cancel everything. 
Uh, and that yeah. didn't happen. I mean, things definitely got put on hold and there were things that got canceled, but not to the level that I think any of us expected. And that it gives me some hope, it gives me some hope. Yeah, your, your um, view of the ABI and the Dodge indexes that come out, um, I've found that quite interesting. You know, it, the bottom did drop out a bit, but it's, it's risen, it's stabilized. It stayed fairly stable. It, it appears to me, and a lot of my customers are saying the same, that there's still a lot of pent-up demand. There's, there's, there's some, you know, there's the election and there's COVID, but that once things resolve, there's going to be kind of this opening of the floodgates. That's, that's what I've gathered as I've collected intel. Sure. And it depends. It depends also on what market too, because you look at areas like the Northeast, like Boston, that got shut down for a while. Um, their demand got slid. And so there's going to be continued pent up demand there uh, because they had to take, uh, you know, a good, what, six to eight weeks off. Uh, and even after that, you know, the, the productivity of trying to social distance on a job site, um, you know, in New York, you have to, you know, you have to glaze a job while staying six feet away from your coworker that has changed the way a lot of those glazers work yeah. uh, and it slowed things down. So that does keep sliding backlogs, uh, which, which in a way helps us. Uh, it's not great for the glazer who's seeing a lot more hours out there than they, they accounted for mm-hmm. uh, on those jobs, but uh, the backlogs will slide. Uh, and so the demand is, is uh, surprising. Uh, things have stabilized. I'll be really curious to see, you know, in, in these next couple months where the ABI goes, uh, you know, I hope it, it starts to pop up over 50. The design inquiries have been up over 50. Uh, the contracts just finally popped up over 50. So uh, the trends are the right way. Uh, you know, it's funny how negative the analyst from ABI, the AIA is, uh, but I guess, uh, you know, uh, you know he, he, he wants to be negative and then be, be surprised and be happy when, uh, yeah. when things go well. Yeah, he'd rather exceed expectations. You know, yes. you made an interesting comment about the resiliency of the building products industry and, you know, construction in general. And of course, this, if the fact checkers are checking me, they may dispute me because I know it's changed with, you know, trillion dollar um, market caps for Microsoft and Apple and Amazon, et cetera. However, the latest statistics I've read is that, it, it, no, no surprise here, there's still far more assets under roof in the United States that, it's in the trillion, multi-trillions of dollars in constructed assets, just in building infrastructure, let alone utility and other infrastructure. Um, the, and the IT world has to be housed as well. Server farms, everything else. So yeah. um, it's a tremendous focus, whether it is new construction or you know, repair to damaged facilities from storms or whether it's upgrades to existing facilities. Um, that, People got to keep their assets protected. Yeah, and, and I think the one thing to account for is if we can if we can get to a point where we have a, a an energy uh, approach in this country where we can attack these older buildings, ones that were built in the seventies and eighties uh, that have anything with single pane uh, or old systems, yeah. non thermally, but if we can attack those and, and get those changed out, uh, that'll be obviously huge for the environment, huge for energy, and then gigantic for all of us. Um, to me, you know, I've seen different, you know, codes and laws from, from other countries, including ones that said before you could sell the building, it has to be up to the current energy code. Um, if we can get to that point, if we can get these older facilities, especially you look at, again, from the building boom in the eighties, you know, those mm-hmm. silver boxes, yeah. you know, that, 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 you know, are just, you know, not good for energy at energy all. Hogs, get yeah. those, 
you know, get those retrofitted, my gosh. And uh, I hope we can get to that. That's what I would hope that the code, you know, code bodies and people should be working on to, to really look at that old inventory because it's not the new inventory that, that concerns me. It's the old. Those are the ones that are sucking the energy out of our world. Right. Yeah, that's good. You know, I'm going to make a, what may seem like a crazy statement, but I, I actually believe that the push towards uh, better performing buildings has a national security, national defense um, component to it because I lived through the OPEC oil embargo. I was in the gas lines as a teenager, um, young man, you know, filling up my four cylinder Chevy Vega that my dad let me borrow when gas hit a dollar a gallon. Oh my goodness. Um, And there's a, a much greater energy independence we have right now, but I think energy independence is a huge deal. And the less demand on buildings, the more discretionary margin we have with energy, how we produce energy, how we create energy. And it, it, it has national defense implications, as do all the other things that take energy, because the more energy independent we are, the better off we are. Yeah, no, no, no doubt, no doubt. And I think that uh, we, we, we tend in this country to get uh, very comfortable when uh, oil is in, in large supply and the energy prices yeah. are low. Uh, and we shouldn't be that way. Uh, and that, that hurts us. Uh, you know, when you're, when you're happy because, you know, you can fill up right now for a buck 88 and things are, <laughs> uh, you know, things are good. Um, that's great. But now's also the time that we really got to look for the future. So you're dead on. It is definitely a national issue and national security issue. Great call. Yeah, that's good. Man, uh, an, an hour has flown by <laughs> and, yes. uh, I want to respect your time and, and the time for our audience. I, I, I was going to ask you about one more quick question about warm edge space or when you were talking yeah. about the, the wall, have you, have you seen a lot more tooling up a lot more uh, glass fabricators utilizing warm edge spacer, not just stainless steel, but other warm edge spacers? I have that. That is, that is finally, finally starting to really kind of get its legs. Um, you mentioned Mark Silverberg earlier. Mark, you know, was, 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 was one of the, the leaders along with uh, Joe Herb from Quantex yeah, yeah. You know, guys that that really were the the initial thumpers of we need to go to this and and you know get your plants up to speed and so on and uh, it took people a while because they didn't understand it they couldn't understand the energy savings to it uh, you know there there were some cost uh, you know challenges involved but yeah it's starting to really come along there's a lot of options now a lot more options than there used to be um, it's 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 now fits seamlessly into production that's the thing that people don't understand is you can come up with a great product. Uh, but if it can't fit into somebody's production without a massive issue or a big capex, you know, capex play, yeah. it's going to be hard to get get there. But everybody has made their changes, uh, and, and really, I, I am seeing a lot more warm edge. And I think we have to continue to, you know, you know, push that quote unquote building envelope. Uh, we have to. Uh, we can't sit still. And uh, you know, folks like uh, all the companies we mentioned in this this podcast today are all. I think they have the, their hearts and their minds in the right place. And the more we can do, the better off we're all going to be. That's really good to hear. We've said many times, it's not the use of glass in building construction. That's a problem. It's the misapplication and misappropriation of glass um, or the edge of the glass adjoining to conductive aluminum without any thermal barrier or thermal ideology there that you can you you can utilize to minimize uh, heat loss sure absolutely that's it so um so max um i'll put this in the show notes but um tell us how we can find you you're out there on social media you're on twitter what's your handle on twitter 
Uh, Twitter handle is Max P Soul Source, all one word. So M A X P Soul Source S O L E S O U R C E. That's my handle on Twitter and on LinkedIn at, at Max Perlstein uh, P E R I L S T E I N. Uh, the blog uh, goes out every Sunday on uh, on Blogspot uh, from the fra- from the fabricator.blogspot.com. But a lot of people find it easier by just going to glassmagazine.com and clicking on the blog section. Uh, and they post that every there every, every week on Tuesdays. Uh, but uh, it's an honor being on this this show. I love uh, love your blogs. Love these podcasts. Uh, you do a great thing for uh, the building product world by doing this. Uh, I learn every time. Uh, every guest you've had, I've learned something, and uh, hopefully somebody learned something from me today. Other than how I met my wife, but that that works too. Uh, <laughs> and and it's uh it's a pleasure to be here. And uh, anything I can uh, ever do for for uh, for a Wheaton and Sprague person, I will always do it because you guys uh, support the industry uh, a tremendous amount, and that's uh, I'm thankful for that. I appreciate that very much. Uh, we're all just looking to provide value out there into the supply chain and try to help people out. So thanks for those good words. Um, look him up, ladies and gentlemen, Max Perlstein, sole source consultants, um, a key voice in the industry, uh, advisor to many, and uh, look up, look for his blog, look for his Twitter stream. He's got a lot of followers. Be one of those. Um, like I said, I'll put the stuff in the show notes. Um, shout out to Josh, who will enjoy editing an hour and six minutes of, of uh, podcast again. We look, uh, we thank everybody for listening to date. Um, for the the previous podcast. Um, We'll get this um, out there soon and uh, look forward to future guests. Max, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been fantastic. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Okay, take care.